0: Hackers, the modern-day criminal. My name is Jack, and I'm glued to a good cybercrime story. Just listen to some of these guys.
1: I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut. The first time you steal a billion dollars, it's a bit of a rush. After you've kind of done this so many times, it's almost expected. Want to hear the rest of their stories
0: and other true stories from the dark side of the internet? Go listen to the podcast, Darknet Diaries.
1: Hello and welcome to the Mission Chunya podcast. And if you are a regular listener, I really hope you feel at home and in sync when you come back to listen to new episodes that go out every other week. So, if you want to tell me how you feel about the podcast, the content, and anything, you can write a review on the podcast platforms or you can also tag Mission Chunya, go by the handle at Mission Chunya on a social media post be it Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Or you can also write me an email, mishanshunya at gmail.com. Do let me know, do let me know your views and I look forward to hear from you. And if you are following Clean Tech and Sustainability Podcast, you might have come across the Energy Talk Podcast. The Energy Talk Podcast covers all the topics related to the energy sector, ranging from renewables to energy access and much more. It is hosted by Olu, and recently, I had the opportunity to collaborate on an episode. So before you listen to the episode, let us hear from Olu and know more about the Energy Talk podcast. Hey Olu, good to have you on the Mission Shunya podcast. Oh, thank you so much,
0: Girish. It's a pleasure being here.
1: It was a pleasure to be on the Energy Talk podcast. And uh, can you give us a brief background on what you do and what, what, is, what is the reason that you started the podcast? Okay, so the reason I started the podcast, I think I, I'll
0: start with that, is I just got out of school and I got my degree in petroleum and natural gas engineering. So uh, I got out of school, was looking for jobs, and then I really had to deal with the fact that I didn't really know too much about the industry that I was trying to get into. And that was the oil and gas industry at the time. So just uh, it was uh, just a uh, personal bit to learn more about the industry that kind of turned into a wider, uh, learning experience. So I found a lot of podcasts, a lot of articles. And while I was learning about the different sectors, I found that most of the information was a bit segmented. Um, the oil and gas people kind of kept to themselves. Uh, you was in a corner of its own and then nuclear and policy was in different places. So I just felt like, uh, at that point in my life, it would be so much easier if I could find all these conversations kind of in the same place. So I thought that mm, this might be an interesting thing to start. And I would also have the opportunity to talk with amazing people from around the world and basically get free masterclasses and really accelerate my learning. So that was why I started the Energy Talk at the time I did. Um, I saw it as a, a very important issue. And the more I learn about it, the more I come to appreciate the complexity of the issue and really appreciate the effort and the passion of the people that are really putting in their time and effort to try to solve this problem. So uh, yeah. So right now, I'm in Nigeria. I'm interning in an oil and gas uh, services company. And yeah, so it's just uh, early days in my career. And I'm just excited to learn and excited
1: to talk to people. That's a wonderful reason, Olu, because lot, not many people tell that they started something to learn, especially podcast. If you ask a general wider audience of people why you started podcast, they will probably say like, I had a lot of things to share. So I started a podcast. But that's a good reason that you gave that you wanted to learn in the process. So that's a good thing. And uh, I hope uh, your message is reading, reaching a wider audience. So what is the kind of feedback that you're getting for the platform? I'm sure you're talking to a lot, lot of people and your message is getting across to a lot more people so what is the kind of feedback and uh, where do you plan to take the energy talk next well
0: that is a very interesting question because honestly initially since i saw this as a personal learning experience i didn't really think many other people would be interested in listening so first that came a bit of a shock uh initially that people would actually listen And then it just became uh, a sense of responsibility. Okay. Since people are listening, now I have an extra responsibility, not just to focus on my own personal learning, but to take the extra step and research more and to actually put in more effort in the production of the podcast. And that has been very demanding, but funny enough, it's been a process that I've genuinely come to really, really love the creation process. And right now it's in a point where. Um, I've had guests from different countries, different parts of the world, from different sectors, oil and gas, renewables, um, talking about energy policy and energy access issues, and people listening from different parts of the world that I've never met before. And now the energy talk has kind of grown into a team of three people who are, uh, come from different sectors. So we kind of combine our knowledge to produce a final product. So it's, 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 it's been very exciting working on it. It's also taught me a lot of things about, uh, time management and uh, networking, especially reaching out to guests and just uh, because w- what you have to realize in the early days was I was just a random guy who just got out of school sending emails to professionals saying that, hey, I have this podcast and I would really love to talk to you and I'm really excited about this. And the funny thing I found was many people willing to help you if you just ask for it. And if they see that you are serious about what you're asking for, and you are passionate, and you're ready to do the work, many people will jump in and be willing to help you. And that has been a massive part in what has gotten the podcast where it is today. Just the amount of people who have offered help, offered advice, and just been willing to work with me through my mistakes and through my learning process to where I have now. So right now, going up forward for the podcast is just about challenging ourselves to capture stories from the different industries and present it in a way that people would want to listen to because i think that is the biggest challenge because it's it's one thing to have the facts and it's another thing to have it in a form that people actually want to listen to so we're kind of trying to marriage um, facts and storytelling in a way that can reach a broader audience and really get them interested and more importantly get them engaged in the energy industry and to pick what sector they want to focus on because um it's a big problem. And there are many, many avenues for you to apply yourself. And the more people that are joining in and the more hands you have, the better. So uh, next few years, we're just going to focus on this and hopefully it, uh, it yields good returns. And uh, I'm just genuinely excited to have the opportunity to be doing this right now.
1: That's fantastic, Olu. And it was really exciting for me to be part of the podcast earlier and uh, really glad that you took time to do the research and get me on the show. And then, ask the right questions i think it was one of the wonderful interactions that i had with people in the sector so good luck good luck with the podcast and happy to help and happy to spread the message to wider audience thank you so much
0: it's a pleasure it was a pleasure having you on i always have to overcome some sort of like anxiety every time i reach out to somebody new but it's always a pleasure when hackers the modern day criminal my name is jack and i'm glued to a good cybercrime story just listen to some of these guys
1: I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut. The first time you steal a billion dollars, it's a bit of a rush. After you've kind of done this so many times, it's almost expected.
0: Want to hear the rest of their stories and other true stories from the dark side of the internet? Go listen to the podcast, Darknet Diaries. After all the work, the interview turns out great, and I learned something, and they, and they don't feel like they've wasted their time. That, for me, is the is the best reward for uh, the entire process. So thank you so much. And I really look forward to this going out and also reaching your audience on the Vision Shunya podcast. And uh, I really uh, appreciate this opportunity.
1: Now, here's a conversation on energy and sustainability in India as featured on the Energy Talk podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk, a podcast where we share stories about energy. My name is Olubumi Olajide, and thank you so much for joining us again this week. In this conversation, we're going to be focusing on the country of India, and we're going to be talking a lot about its renewable energy industry and the electric cars margin market in India. So, India is a very unique country. It accounts for 1.4 billion people, that's the second largest population in the world and it also produces 6.5% of the global CO2 emissions. Now, according to the Sustainable Energy for All database, India has gone from about 70% to almost 99% electricity access rates in the last 10 years. And this massive leap has led to some consequences, including worsening air quality and a larger overall carbon footprint. So we're going to be talking a lot about what it takes for a country to to go from uh, a developing country to an emerging economy and really establish itself, and how the citizens continue to adapt to all these things that come with uh let's call it the growing pains so with all that being said let's jump right into the conversation with grish
1: so i'm grish shivakumar i'm based out of bangalore in india i call myself a clean tech evangelist and a professional for about nine years i've been in this space right after my bachelor's i joined a solar power developer. And right from there until now, I've been in the clean tech space, worked on solar power projects, energy storage, electric vehicles and uh, covered a lot of things, mostly in India, but also did some work in UK for a bit. And uh, yeah, right now, mostly focused on energy storage and uh, electric vehicles at this point. Okay. okay.
0: So, uh, earlier in your career, you were awarded the Chevening Scholarship and you moved on to do your master's at Cambridge University. So, how much of an impact did that have early on in your career and right now as you keep going forward with the work you're doing?
1: Uh, thanks for bringing that up, Olu. Uh, it was definitely a turning point in my career. achieving uh, Scholarships are given to like earliest career professionals. They kind of require a two-year work experience. So when I got Chivning, I had like f- about four years of work experience. So the way looking back, the way I would put it is the entire process of applying to Chivning is itself a great experience. So for me, it was a lot more hard because I had to get into Cambridge and then get a Chivning scholarship. So the acceptance rate of both are really, really low. So <laughs> only like about five out of hundred or something get get an opportunity. So... When I look back, I think the entire process of preparing for it, uh, I think, made me a better person. I had to really prepare for it and align with what I want to do. So, I had to define what I want to do because when when you are up against the best around the world, so you really have to have something solid that you talk to people and then even they are convinced that, okay, this person is worth the scholarship so that once he returns back to the sector, he'll probably add value. So, it's a... Phenomenal experience, so I had a great experience talking to various people right from professors in the university up to the Deputy High Commissioner in India who interviewed me for the final round. It was a wonderful experience and once you get that scholarship, you are then, everything is set for you. It's a fully funded scholarship, they take you to UK, they provide you with entire allowance, they pay the tuition fees and everything is taken care of and it's like you don't have to worry about anything. And top of that, you have like other scholars coming from around the world. So you get to network with them. You establish your connection, basically. For me, from my point of view, I think establishing that network and connection really adds value. Because the evening program has been here for over 30 years now. And it has like phenomenal amount of successful people. The list of alumni are like phenomenal. So being part of that cohort really helps you because as you progress in your career, you need to build your network for yourself. You need to try to leverage the network. I think at this point, I'm trying to the later part of it. I want to leverage my network and see how I can add value to the space.
0: Okay. So uh, three years down the line, I think it's fair to say that you've more than added value to the sector you're in. Uh, last year, you awarded the Economic Times Young Leader of the Year. So how was that experience for you?
1: Oh, thanks Olu. Uh, Thanks for bringing that again up. And it, it was another experience. So I didn't try to put myself against the other people who also want to add value to the society in whatever sector they are doing, whatever work they are doing. So I just try to see like, where am I in the space? And uh, so Economic Times Young Leaders is another program. It's an intense, comp- intense program uh, run by the Economic Times media publication in India. Every year, about like 25, 26,000 people apply to the program and over a four round of selections of list of people are then selected as economic times young leader for that year and um, here again just like Chivning scholarships was the first uh, leadership assessment that i had to take up because Chivning itself calls it pr- positions itself as providing scholarships for leaders of future emerging leaders so i mean all the people who have won the Chivning scholarships have gone on to A big positions in government private sector so that was a good start i had uh, in assessing my capabilities and uh, this again again it's a different leadership assessment more from the work perspective on how on what kind of manager you are how you handle tasks What do you plan to do in the long run? And these kind of assessments. It involved like various case studies, business case studies, group discussions, and all those sorts of things. And finally, again, in this one, the added advantage is like you get to interview with the top CEOs of different sectors from India. So the jury has like about 10 top CEOs. So I interviewed with like the head of Accenture in India. So it was a great experience. Again, they test you like on really the long term vision that you have, what do you plan to do, and what value you add to the table? So again, another assessment and another thing that preparing for all these assessments makes you a better person. That's what I can say looking back. So from here on, it's just you just carry on with the work and uh, yeah, it's a good experience and I hope to add carry on with it.
0: Okay, so moving on from that, uh, you started the mission Shunya podcast recently did i pronounce that right
1: yes mission Shunya. so Shunya is a sanskrit word that says zero so when i started off in, in my career in solar sector i joined the german developer uv uv had this vision like we want to be 100 percent renewable energy they are doing a great job with that but then i thought it's getting to 100 is really tough and there are a lot many challenges with it and Renewable energy is just one part of sustainability. So when I did my master's, I thought there are other aspects to it. Like energy is one, then there is mobility, clean mobility, then there is circular economy and everything. So I thought the ultimate objective kind of is to transition to a zero carbon economy, zero carbon world, where you try to reduce emissions so that it adds value from all around, be it energy, electric vehicles, how you handle the circular economy, other aspects of sustainability. So that's what I thought is going to be the big thing. It integrates energy, electric mobility, circular economy, and other sustainability practices. So uh, I thought, so yeah, why not talk about it? I've worked in the space. I continue to work in the space. And I meet a lot of interesting people from around the world, interesting work. So I thought, let let me provide a platform where people can come on board, share their experience, share what they are doing. Maybe if listening to the podcast, following the feed on social media if someone's able to take some action and convince other people just say three people a month to take action then i mean the transition to a zero carbon economy can happen in a better way so yeah that's how i got started (laughs) okay so uh reflecting
0: on the community that you're actually involved in uh the country of India and uh, smaller communities that make up India. Um, there's been a lot of progress in the last 10 years. Um, so, in terms of um, electrification rates, um, access to energy, it's gone from about 70% to about 95% since 2009. But uh, this development doesn't really reflect what's going on in India. So, could you just talk about um, how it's been going in the energy sector and where India is right now in terms of their development in this cycle?
1: Yeah, that's a valid point that you bring up and you really get the stats nearly right. So yes, a decade ago, electricity was around that number. A lot of villages in the remote part of country, India is a big country, and remote corners are in difficult terrains where you couldn't probably lay transmission lines to get electricity there. And people in habitation in those kind of pockets were really low, so there was not much done to those sectors. But over the last few years especially in the later part of the last decade electrification rapidly scaled up one is providing because of, the previous government got a new the current government in the previous term got a program called saubhagya they said like we are going to get all villages electrified so all the pockets that are not accessible by regular grid connection they started providing mini grids solar battery systems and things like that so this really brought the electrification rate close to 99%. So the minimum, the small percentage that is missing is in the remote pockets where people staying in small hamlets kind of are not connected. But yeah, I think 100% household level electrification is very soon on the cards. So this is one part of the electricity and energy scenario. During the same period, like when I started in 2011, solar prices were pretty high. That was the same globally as well. But then the cost of solar panels started coming down and India kind of took advantage of that. So we had large scale tenders come up where large international developers came to India and started bidding for those projects. So what it really did was it brought down the cost of power generation low. So today the cost of power generation from a solar or a wind power plant is lower than what the cost of generation is from a thermal power plant. So the large scale ramp up of renewable energy has really brought down the cost of solar. And this is something that I would like to mention is because the large-scale auctions like that was seen in India in the last few years, it is unparalleled. I think India was one of the first major economies to bring in this large-scale of auction because getting the volumes meant price reduction was possible and uh, setting up infrastructure was also possible. Although there are small hurdles in getting integration to the grid, etc., but the prices have really come down so and energy capacity addition has also increased significantly in the last decade
0: hmm. wow so i think maybe it kind of adds to the challenge that india has the second largest population in the world at about 1.3 billion people and when you have these people all scattered up in different parts of the region i can imagine that 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 makes the task very difficult and that needs to have different solutions for different regions. And even though there's been a really huge surge in terms of renewables, there's also been a surge in the usage of coal and coal-fired power plants. So, could you just talk about what that has led up to now in terms of uh, the environmental impact that I've, that has had?
1: Uh, a small correction because when when news from Indian power sector reaches the global audience, I think uh, this figure tends to get a little uh, quoted or misinterpreted if i could put it that way because coal power plants building coal power plants takes a lot of time uh, the, the period of construction to commissioning is a long process right from securing fuel supply to commissioning is a long process most of the power plants take more than five years on an average so all the power plants that have been commissioned in the last few years were, was something that was sanctioned over 10 years back Because of the shortage of coal supply, these plants just couldn't get operational. So, in this government, the kind of government has kind of changed the coal linkage policy and allotted coal to all these power plants. So, that's why these power plants are coming online. But at the same time, if you look at the finer numbers, the operational efficiencies of these power plants are really low. So, they kind of operate at a low plant load factor, meaning that they run for only a fewer number of hours compared to the last few years. So this one, again, one could argue that why do you have to run at a sub-optimal level which actually increases emissions. True, this is happening but at the same time, I think as we scale up more firm power and say, more energy storage that comes onto the grid, I'm sure we will be able to balance the energy better and we would probably ramp down all the coal generation. So, at this point, yes, there is a mix of coal and renewables ramping up. But the operational fa- operation of coal power plants are really low. I think one needs to look at the finer numbers from these power plants. Those are kind of not reported in the media. So the power plants that I talk of are going less than 50% plant load factor because they are turned down at some periods where solar generation and wind generation is high. So that is a real scenario, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. That is interesting.
0: So in terms of adoption of uh, renewable energy in India, How do you think businesses businesses are adapting to uh, the new mode of operation, if you will, as cleaner sources of energy become more available and prices go down? How has the general adoption been in the Indian community?
1: if you bring bring about the point of businesses i mean from my experience uh, i can tell you a st- lot of stories of how businesses are pretty smart in adopting to renewable energy let me give you an example so while working for a solar power developer and while i was talking to clients in the there is indian state of Tamil Nadu, this belt is very good for the wind generation Tamil Nadu state uh, that's on the southern part of india it's very good it's towards the coast and that belt is very good for wind generation. So what happened was, due to some government policy which provided incentives for investment in wind assets, most of the businesses, most of the textile and other manufacturing businesses actually went on and invested in these windmills. So they got financial benefit in terms of tax benefits and also got power that they could use for their industry. So this gave them like lower operating cost and also tax benefit, which kind of Help them scale up the business. So there are many success stories. I mean, if most of the windmills that have been installed in the state of Tamil Nadu are owned by businesses, the manufacturing business, the textile industry business. So these people kind of felt there is an added incentive by going green. One is the lower power cost and also the tax benefits that was available. So there are multiple stories like this. So businesses are very sharp. They know their math very well. So when you talk to them, they will tell you each and every part of the electricity component. What is the fixed charge? What is the energy charge? And what, what am I paying in terms of taxes for electricity? What is the impact if I have more demand than the sanctioned capacity? So they are very aware of that. And that makes business that makes interacting with these people more easy. Because if you had, have a value proposition that you take it to them, they are kind of... They listen to it. And they make sharp decisions. So... I didn't find any problem interacting with these businesses. But of course, small-scale businesses in small pockets who have no experience of this, it is a different learning experience, educating experience, telling them about the benefits of putting a solar plant on their roof or minimizing the diesel generator use by having a battery storage or solar plus diesel combination. So that's a different part. But most businesses are in today's... in in today times are like very well aware of what's happening and uh, they are very well aware. So there's no problem with that. Okay. So uh, uh,
0: one particular sector that I would like to highlight is uh, the transportation sector in India. Since there's so many people and that results in a lot of cars and a lot of uh, need for transportation measures, uh, it's, it's fair to say that there's a good opportunity in the country for uh, electric vehicles. So has that been something that has been explored and do you see as something that could be a major
1: factor in the next few years so india india in most part of the western world uh, sometimes called as the jugard nation jugard or as uh, professor j. d. prabhu from the cambridge university puts it frugal innovation so we look at having some mechanisms where we try to make it better. Like, for example, all the last mile mobility in most metros in India, like, for example, the capital region of Delhi, the mobility is electric. There are small electric rickshaws that ply that connect the metro stations to nearby localities. So this has not grown organically. They have just cropped up from different parts of, different pockets of Delhi that are close to the metro stations. And there are a lot of uh, electric rickshaws. I mean... It's become so much that even the government is not able to regulate it at this point. But of course, they are trying to regulate it by having giving them incentives in terms of charging, etc. But this is something that's cropped up inorganically. So there was no policy for that. But just a few rickshaws came on road and people started seeing the benefits of it. So this kind of mobility has definitely picked up. But of course, the cost of batteries and other components are a little high compared to the conventional ICE engine, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. So large-scale adoption in terms of four-wheelers has not happened. But four-wheelers for like fleet operations where taxi companies or cars that ply for corporates, they have kind of adopted electric vehicles because they see an added benefit because they ply close to 100-200 kilometers a day. And uh, they know by having just one charge in between when they take a break, they, can, they will be able to cover the distance in the electric vehicle. so that's another sector that's picked up and in recent government policies government is giving a incentive package for these kind of applications that go for fleet applications and commercial use where your subsidy the ba- subsidy for the battery is capped based on the capacity of battery that is there in the car which has enabled a lot of fleet operators to buy electric vehicles and operate so that way their emissions are reduced and it's also adding value because the total cost of ownership for an electric vehicle depends on the number of kilometers you run in a period. Fleet operators like taxis and others run run more kilometers, so it makes perfect economic sense and those are the sectors that's really picking up. And public buses, electric buses is again something that the cost of ownership would probably add value over a 10-15 year period, but the cost of... Bus is pretty high. So again, government has a set of schemes where they're saying like highly congested cities will probably given added incentives to procure electric buses and operate because most of the transport operations are government run. So there are incentive packages that have been given. So it'll take time to reflect in public mobility at this point. But last mile mobility is kind of sorted out. People are aware like the three wheelers, electric three wheelers, the tuk-tuks. Are there they are operating and uh, they are they are performing well, if I can say it that way. Hmm.
0: So, so, something interesting that you mentioned was that uh, this this kind of adoption of uh, electric vehicle mobility isn't really a direct impact of what the government has done. Just people realizing that there are certain benefits to this. So. Um, do you see that as the major driving force to people making decisions, or how aware are the people of India about uh, climate concerns, for instance, rather than just uh, making business making decisions based on what's good for business and what's good for economics? So, which is the major driving force in in these decisions for regular people, not just the government coming up with policies, just for regular day to day people trying to operate and run their businesses?
1: this is an interesting question uh, because this is a question that i also ponder from time to time so where which is the direction that uh, the country will go, go and what kind of adoption will be there but when i talk to people this is what i realize so as a country when india is moving is on a developing trajectory and when more people are getting better paying jobs so there is always an aspirational part of it where people who who Whose per capita, whose income levels are going up, they would like to live a certain lifestyle. So this lifestyle in a typical household probably involves buying a car, and uh, car for them is a luxury, and uh, they would like to buy a car and which is affordable to them. At this point, even though if they are even though they are aware that an electric car, the operating cost is pretty low, cost wise it's still on a higher side, and. Uh, they would they wouldn't want to shell out that extra money to buy an electric car at this point. That is on a average level, but again, the other set of people who are well aware and who can afford that extra buck are buying electric cars. And uh, in recent in recent years, you in recent months, sorry, you can see a lot of international players also launching vehicles. So that kind of thing, people who are aware about sustainability, cleaner mobility, are definitely adopting this. And the other other part. Um, sorry. Um, the other part that is coming up is again, like I said, the fleet operation is turning electric. People are aware that they can book a taxi that is electric because electric taxis are also playing. So that is something people are cautiously taking, making decisions on. But again, for an aspirational country, it's it's a it's a tough call. But um, I'm sure as time progresses, as the cost of electric mobility comes down, it'll happen. And in certain pockets, like in Delhi, for example, there is a rule that bans vehicles of one category, one number plate, flying on alternate days. So, because Delhi, again, kind of hits a peak pollution uh, levels during a certain period of the year, and during that time, people generally are aware, they understand that it's because of the transportation that they are having this issue, transportation is one cause of it. So, they cautiously take call by not driving vehicles during that point in time. So... Yes, it's happening and it'll just take time.
0: Hmm. Do you think that this is something that it just has to do with the development stage that India is in? I think it's fair to say India is rapidly moving away from the category of what a traditional developing country is to a more established uh, country and economy. Because... um, it's dealing with problems that many cities around the world have also dealt with, uh, air pollution, and just setting up policies that just protect the environment. As more people start to move, up, get to a certain uh, income threshold, they start to care more about many other things that are happening in their general environment. I can give an example of Nigeria, for instance, now, uh, because the income level for most for most households are very low. People just do not care about uh, what the environment looks like because everybody's just so busy about just feeding their families for the next day. And that really shapes the way they think. But as India moves towards uh, a more established economy, do you think that this is something that's going to be a lot more focused on in the next few years?
1: It, it is it is definitely going to be a focus point in the next few years because India has made a firm commitment on the Paris Climate Agreement and uh, we definitely have aggressive targets both in terms of renewable energy capacity, cutting down emissions, also having a certain say, percentage of mobility being transformed to non, uh, zero emission vehicles. So there is definitely a commitment. But again, India is definitely, the per capita income is definitely increasing but at the same time, population is another factor. And uh, so... It'll balance out and uh, there'll definitely be a certain set section of people who will still continue to, who will be unable to afford like say an electric vehicle or installing solar on their roofs. So yeah, population and development kind of balance it out. And um, that I think that's going to be a little challenge, but I think there are opportunities and I'm sure it'll happen as uh, time progresses.
0: So I have another interesting question, and I apologize because this might not be a very fair question, but you mentioned about moving towards uh, a low-carbon economy, and there is there is this argument that I've heard a lot. I've, I've actually heard both sides of this argument about uh, the more a country tries to de- decarbonize and tries to worry more about uh, what it's... Its uh, its its carbon footprint is and worrying about the environment kind of slows down economic development of that country and of that community. Do you see that as something that will play a role? And is this something? Is this is this conversation something that's been had right now in India?
1: That's an interesting question. As you say, it's definitely an argument. It's it has always been an argument. And uh, but I mean, again, the, we shouldn't go beyond uh, businesses, for example you ask any businesses on why they adopt certain sustainability practices of putting, say, a solar plant on their roof or uh, conserving water or minimizing the air conditioning usage, they will definitely tell you that increases the operational efficiencies. So people are aware that saying, for example, if I could quote Professor J.D. Prabhu again, doing better with less actually helps them run their businesses more efficiently and uh, better. So people are aware of that. Like, for example, another key example is, again, waste segregation is a costly affair. Uh, if people would say that because you tell people what to do, you segregate bins and uh, you ask them to collect it during certain days. That's a costly affair for a government to run. But uh, in terms of the entire end-to-end value chain, just just because waste is properly segregated, they can recycle waste better. So dry waste can be recycled in a better way and then the wet waste can actually be processed and uh, there are small, small waste to energy plants coming up in city centers in and around like major metros in bangalore where the waste is processed and you get gas out of it which again is supplied to local facilities like restaurants who use that gas and uh, so there is this ideology and understanding that's coming up in local governments where they're saying like doing good is also adding value to the entire value chain and uh, Operational-wise, it's better. And that, as, as time progresses, the cost-benefit, people will do the cost-benefit analysis and kind of prove that, yeah, having a, living a sustainable lifestyle actually makes it better for the long run. But in the short run, yes, change is always difficult, right? So people will tend to resist to that and always kind of say that change is costly and uh, that's going to cost more. Maybe there is mer- some merit to it, but i wouldn't totally agree to that okay so that's that's a fair way to approach this argument
0: it's a very uh actionable point of view but also very manages to be very pragmatic as well so i i actually commend you on that stance uh so how, what would you say is the biggest challenge for the country of India right now as it moves towards uh, low emissions, low carbon economy and trying to gear itself more towards renewables than higher emission uh, sources of running business. So what do you think are the major pain points and things that need to be overcome in the next 10, 20 years for India to really be established as
1: as a low carbon economy country? The biggest challenges from the infrastructure point of view like for example, be it electric mobility or power generation, infrastructure has to keep up pace because the next phase of development of solar or wind projects are going to happen in pockets that are little further from the grid. So you need to nail, lay new transmission lines, set up new substations and uh, bring those power to the grid, connect it to the grid and supply it to other parts. And uh, as you get more, more and more renewable generation, then you're also adding more uncertainty to the grid. That means you can't supply firm power unless you have other sources to balance it out. Today, ramping up and down of thermal power plants or hydropower plants are very minimum unless government and other developers invest in something like energy storage that can do ramp up and ramp down to meet the demand and supply at a sub-second level. Then those those are the kind of bottlenecks that will we will see when integrating more renewable energy into the grid. Likewise, for mobility again... As more and more vehicles come, there will be an added demand to the electricity. But of course, the other thing is people will always want to take the highway, hit the highway, and they would want to see more charging infrastructures there, which again is going to be, a, wouldn't say a real bottleneck because I'm sure businesses will find ways to put charging infrastructure and uh, those will come up, but it's just going to be a time factor. Again, uh, the other part of zero uh, zero carbon is something that I say the circular economy. I bring this up again and again because, uh, again, waste management and uh, stuff like this where you upcycle stuff and all this are really crucial. These are the things that are really missed out. But as city progresses, these are the things that the government also needs to identify and uh, encourage businesses who are running these kind of operations. Like, again, I I can say, like, in in my podcast series, I've had, like, a few entrepreneurs who have come and spoken about how they have converted waste to energy, waste to better quality materials by upcycling and stuff like that. So these are also part of the sustainability aspect and the transition to a zero-carbon economy. So, which, again, doesn't get the uh, attention as, like, uh, electric vehicle or renewable energy. But these are also something that needs to be addressed and uh, i'm sure this will happen inorganically but it'll take time one more thing that i would like to ask you because i think it'd be pretty unfair to,
0: to let you go from the interview without asking you this so after the chevnin scholarship and uh being named young leader of the, uh, by the economic times um let's take it back uh, a few years maybe five six seven years ago and if you meet someone who was in your shoes just getting out of school getting their first job and looking to make an impact in the energy industry or just in the world as general as we face new challenges and we deal with a rapid transition so what advice would you give someone who wants to get into the industry the energy industry and just find the space where they can be impactful and really start working towards solutions.
1: Well, that's a interesting question. And uh, since you have put me down the line and I would like to take this moment to say, like, again, all this thing that have happened is because I've been really grateful. I've been at the right place at the right time. I kind of made, like, little decisions looking back, which were right. But I'm really grateful for, like, friends, family, and other people who have supported me in this process. So, I definitely thrive on that network of friend, family and other industry colleagues to go to the next level. So I'm really grateful for that. I would like to thank people who have been part of my journey so far. And this question is perfectly leads me to, I can still imagine the day when, uh, I can still think of the day when I went to this company, UE. Uh, I was just passing out of bachelor's. I had like a couple of other offers. I go to this uh, room where the head of the company, Mr. Rajesh but is giving an introduction about the company and what they do and stuff like that. The one thing that he told me was like Bangalore being the hub for inf- information technology in India. He just told me this, like renewable energy in 2011 was somewhere like 20 years where IT was. Like from inf- information technology in the 1990s is equal to renewable energy in 2011. So he just said like 20 years later, renewable energy will be in a place where IT was two, two decades back. So that thought of like, okay, I'm going to enter a sector that's going to be the future, but it will take time. I need to work towards it. So that was a thought that got into my mind at that point. And I think I have never looked back from that. So people have to be fortunate to meet people like that and get into opportunities like that. But I'm sure if you get, if you just put your work towards it, I'm sure you will meet the right people and you can take it forward from there. Mm. Okay. So
0: thank you so much. So uh is 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 there anything else that you want to share regarding uh where India is, where it's going, or just a commentary about the world? Lots of interesting things have been happening in uh the climate change discussion and renewable energy. So is there anything that has piqued your interest
1: in the past few weeks or months about uh the global conversation? There are a lot of things happening and again India is not an isolated case. The other thing that uh Uh, Thinking of global events, I think the extreme weather events is something that comes to mind every now and then. Recently, after uh, the Brazil forest fires, we saw Australia's bushfires. And all these events kind of reinforce something that climate change and uh, it's something that's not a local issue. So everything is a connected issue. So no matter where you are, you just learn from everyone else, collaborate with international companies, international partners, and work towards it. It's not an isolated issue that... Like, for example, India working isolated or people in Africa doing it in an isolated way. Because I'm sure like Africa is going to see the highest development rate in the next decade. So if they are not sustained, if that is not in a sustainable fashion, then I'm sure the repercussions are going to be throughout the world. So it's a global phenomenon that we are trying to address. And I'm sure like medium like yours, medium like mine will probably get more people involved and probably spread message to a larger audience and I hope we continue to do that no matter what I think we should collaborate on all such platforms and take the message to the people and uh, make them aware of the facts. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Special thanks to Olu and the opportunity to talk about energy and sustainability in India on the Energy Talk podcast. It was a wonderful interaction and I must admit that it was one of the most engaging conversations I had in this space. The main reason why I run Mission Chunya is to have a positive impact on the planet. Be a positive catalyst and enable people and businesses have a positive impact through their work. Of course, in the process, I get to connect with wonderful people from around the world. People like Olu who are very passionate in what they do. So I am really grateful for that. You can connect to Tulu and subscribe to the Energy Talk podcast. Just search for the Energy Talk podcast on any platform that you listen to the Mission Junior on. Of course, the links to connect will be available in the show notes section for this episode. So please do check that. And now, on to this week's action item towards Mission Junior. The first action item, of course, is to subscribe to the Energy Talk podcast. The second item is to share a suggestion, a topic, a guest recommendation for a future podcast. It could be a guest, it could be a topic because I'm sure you would come across people, passionate people who are working in this space and if you think their work has to reach a wider audience, please let me know and through the medium, I'm sure their work will reach a wider audience. So do drop me an email, missionjunior@gmail.com. gmail.com or of course, you can tag the person and their work on the social media platforms. Again, the handle is Mission Chunya. So, I will look forward to hear your recommendations. And as always, if you like the show, do spread the word. Just a small help of sharing the episode link to three people in your network will go a long way in the show's discoverability. It takes just about 30 seconds to do that. So, with that, this is Girish. And as always, thank you for listening. Hackers, the modern-day criminal. My name is Jack, and I'm
0: glued to a good cybercrime story. Just listen to some of these guys.
1: I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut. The first time you steal a billion dollars, it's a bit of a rush. After you've kind of done this so many times, it's almost expected. Want
0: to hear the rest of their stories and other true stories from the dark side of the internet? Go listen to the podcast Darknet Diaries.